read together. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're just going to do verses 1 through 4 this morning. Peter says this in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so much. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have as broken people to come into a space before a perfect God and worship God, the beautiful thing about this space is that when we step into your presence, Lord, the playing field levels. It doesn't matter who we are, where we've been, how much money we have, how much we don't have. God, or what we do or what we don't do. Father God, we come into this space on a level playing field seeing you as holy, as perfect, as wonderful, as powerful, God, and we are humbled under your presence today. Father God, I pray that we would just lay down whatever it is we've come in with. God, the the discouragement, the doubts, the hurts, and the worries of the world that are around us. Father God, I pray that we lay at your feet those very things and begin to come with open hands ready to receive what it is you have for us. Father God, challenge us, convict us. Lord, bring to our hearts and minds the message you have for us today. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. So this morning's going to be a little bit two-part. First part, I want to be kind of quick, but you know, I've, I've, I've thought so hard this morning about where we go with this text, you know, because um, I'm all about preaching what the text says and being where the text is and not trying to make something that's not there. And, you know, this morning, as we continue this study, the outsiders, what we've been talking about is what it looks like to live as a Christian in a world that ne- doesn't want your values, doesn't want your morals, doesn't want your mindset. Um, when it comes to the idea of who Christ is. They like the good, they like the good for people, but when it's encompassed with the truth of who God is and what God has done, the world by nature is going to be resistant to that. They're going to press back against that. And so leading up to this point, it's been very kind of focused on how we live, our actions, how we step out, how we live in spiritual defense, how we step in spiritual offense, how we make decisions for ourselves and for our families to begin to take those steps. And so this morning we kind of hear, hear a a change of pace in a sense where Peter begins to speak about a particular type of person in the life of the church. And depending on what type of church background you have, you may or may not have heard this word, but the person he speaks to is elders. And I just want to spend a small amount of time because I believe over the last couple of days, God has kind of challenged me in a way that I want us to kind of focus in on this. But, you know, the word that the Bible uses here and the, the word that the Bible uses over and over and over again 
is this word, when it's speaking of leadership within the church, it's speaking of, uh, when it says elders, this is where we get our word pastor from, or where we get the word bishop from. And so, basically, the word elder is kind of an encompassing word of church leaders. Your preachers, your teachers, your pastors, your leaders, your ministers, those are typically elders. And so for us as a church, and why I wanted to take just a second on this is because for us as a church, you've maybe heard them called trustees or deacons or something like that. But for us as a church, we like to kind of practice the leadership structure of elders and deacons being separate things because of how the Bible presents those things. The elders being kind of the teacher pastors, deacons kind of being those who are servant leaders, those who step into those roles to serve in the church and the people within the context of of the church and so you know for us and as as Peter kind of speaks to this you know our church is built around this idea of elder leadership um, and the word elder you know we always kind of equate that with age and it can be and a lot of times is equated with age but more so in a spiritual sense when we hear the word, word elder and we're speaking of it in the the scope of church leadership we're speaking more of spiritual maturity of wisdom of leadership qualities of qualifications that the Bible would tell us about in Titus and Timothy uh, as Paul would write there specifically about and you can go there and you know one day we may spend some time really teaching on specifics about elders and deacons we have a paper on our little magazine rack back there that speaks of church governance and how we structure our church governance. Um, but, you know, in, in, in the Bible, when it speaks of elders, it's speaking of those people in leadership, speaking of those people that teach and preach. You know, for instance, our church, the elders of our church are me, Garen, and Sean. And the, the, the lone deacon as of now in our church is Mr. Billy. And so, you know, we continue in the, the, the hope and the desire of the church is that you cultivate a, a, an atmosphere where men of God step into those spaces and lead. Because that's what the church needs in times like this. And that's that's why Peter ends this book writing to, he's writing to the people about the elders because for me that's a sense of accountability where Peter isn't writing strictly to the elders. He's writing to the people about the elders. He says the elders among you. And so because what he's wanting to do is he's for one wanting to bring a sense of accountability to the situation where the people can understand this is what you should expect from your elders, your, your pastors, your leaders, your teachers, your ministers is these things that it lists out and where it talks about, you know, exercising oversight or having a vision, you know, serving willingly, like not being domineering. And we'll kind of get into these things as we move. But like I said, man, I, I really had every intentions on coming today and teaching a message about church governance. Sounds exciting, right? That's exactly what we, we would hope to hear, which I believe there is some application. I believe there is a place at which we learn. But the more that I kind of lean into this, the more that I kind of think about this, you know, and so when, when, when Peter writes in verse 1 specifically, he says, So I exhort the elders among you. So we know the context that he's writing in. The church of God is under persecution. They're being marginalized. They're being pushed out of the culture. The people don't want them. The people don't like them. The emperor Nero at the time has accused them of causing a fire in Rome that all the people now hate the Christians for and believe they're just this big rebellious group of people that want to take over the government. And so, when Peter writes this to these people, this word exhort, it can also 
kind of bring about this idea of a call or a summons, kind of like bringing together the people under this kind of focus of leadership. But another way that this word exhort could be communicated is beg. Peter is begging them because he sees the value of leadership in the, in the, in amongst the group of people. It says that it, when the storms are raging, when the war is happening, the value of leadership is unprecedented. You need people of God stepping up. You need people of God. You need Christians stepping into those spaces where they are leading the march into those areas that people need leadership. And so he's begging. He says, I, I exhort the elders among you. And I love, and this kind of, kind of relates to us too, but he uses the word elders in a plural context. And I think that's very important because, and this is why for us it'd be very, you know, it'd be advantageous for us to do a, a message or a teaching, maybe a small group or something on church leadership. Because the way that we see fit to build our church is not the way that the typical church around here is built. Because typically a church is built with one man on top and everything trickles down from that. But we do not believe the way the Bible is communicated that that's how the church was built. That the church was built and led by a group of men. Not by one man. And the reason for it is this. How many of you have been a part of a church where the reason and the draw that you had to that church or the relationship you had, the strongest relationship you had in that church was one man? What happened when that one man disappointed you? What happened when that one man let you down? What happened when that one man said or did something you didn't agree with? He's the man. You, can't, you feel like you can't challenge it, right? You feel like you can't say anything about it. You feel like all the support is in his court. That's not how a church is supposed to be run. Church is supposed to be led by a group of men that are holding each other accountable. That just as much me or Garen or Sean or Brother Billy can step into my space or even you step into my space and say, Hey, Jake, you're wrong. This isn't how this should go. This isn't what you should do. That's how a church should be built where a group of people are holding each other accountable to the truths of God and how a church should be functioning. And so when Peter is writing this, he's writing it to these people. He's writing it to a group of people who we have, have set our church governance to be built like that, praying for more men of God within this church to be stepping into their calling and their gifting to be elders, teachers, you know, and not every, you know, and, and there can be, you know, I mean, I, I teach, Garen teaches, Sean would be more kind of an elder of worship, you know, it's like, it doesn't mean you all have to, everybody that is called to be an elder has to be able to preach, but you need to be able to teach, whether it's through song or through preaching. And so there are qualifications that go into that, and that's not necessarily what I want to focus on this morning, but I do want us to see this. And I just wanted to say those things because I felt like they were applicable and important. Because we don't hear the word, especially depending on what kind of church you grew up in, you don't hear the word elder a lot. And a lot of times we call who are really elders in the churches we've grown up in or you've been a part of, you probably have called those people deacons. But that's different people. That's different roles. But for us this morning... When we think about the word elder and where the type of person that Peter is writing to is he's writing to a person with spiritual maturity in the context of where he lives. And so for us, where I really believe God really, and where he's challenged, and maybe this is only for me this morning, but I believe that this is for us as a church today. That stay with me here. That every single one of us as Christians 
if you call yourself a Christian this morning and claim to have been saved by Christ, that you are an elder somewhere. Do you follow me? That in some space, you are an elder. In some space, you are a spiritual leader. In some space, you are the only Christian in the place. And so because of that, where you are, and so we're talking about this separate from church leadership. That's another day, another message. But what I want us to see and what I believe God wants for us this morning is that somewhere you are an elder. You are a spiritual leader in your marriage, with your children, at your workplace. And so I believe that within this context, within this teaching that Peter gives, there is something for each and every one of us in the space that we step into to be the spiritual leader that God's called us to be. To be that spiritual leader that God has called us to be. You know, because, and, and specifically even in a marriage, and where I really want to hit heavy with our men this morning, is that in the structure at which God has laid things out. You know, we would, there's a lot of schools of thought. I'm going to throw a couple of words at you this morning just so that we have an idea of it. But there's a couple of ways that people look at the, the roles that God has given us as people. Different churches, different spaces of Christianity look at this different. There's typically two camps. There's a camp called complementarianism, which if you grew up in a Baptist church, that's typically the, the camp that you lean in. A lot of other churches kind of lean into that. Or there's another camp that's called egalitarianism. So the complementarianism view, which is the view that we would hold, would teach that men and women, though equal in God's sight, have different roles. Have different responsibilities. One is not more important than the other. But that God has called the man in his relationship, in his marriage, in his space, to be the spiritual head. Now it doesn't mean that he's always the best teacher. It doesn't mean he always has the best answers. That's why it's complementary. Because you have a complementary part that works with you. It's, it's vital that we have someone within the context of our life, uh, you know, ideally in our marriage, it's our spouse, that is our complementary part. That fills the gaps where we lack. It doesn't mean that women aren't capable. It doesn't mean that women don't have the ability. But per God's word, the structure at which he has said is a complementary structure where men have this role, women have this role. One's not more important than the other. That's just how God has laid it out. And so we believe that elders and, de elders and deacons as, are, are, are meant to be men and lead in the context of the church. And so in the spiritual household, men, I want to challenge you this morning to be the spiritual elder of your family. To be that spiritual leader, to be that spiritual headship in the place where, and where we'll talk about this morning, that you are shepherding your flock. That your flock is your family. That that is the people at which you have been given to shepherd. That you are the elder of that. And so if you're not in a marriage per se, uh, that, that even as a single person, that you can be an elder, a spiritual shepherd in the place where you are. And so I hope that we can see the context of which how that applies for us. And so there's two main things that, that Peter focuses on here that I want to challenge us with in being spiritual elders in the places that we step into, spiritual leaders in our household or in the circles of influence that we go to that he speaks of. And so I want to go into here into the first thing in verse 1 to be this, that to be spiritual leaders in our homes. And listen, this isn't an option. So like, well, I don't want to be a spirit. No, as a Christian, you have a responsibility to be a spiritual leader to people in your life that need you. Doesn't mean you have all the answers. Doesn't mean that you preach. Doesn't mean that you sing great. It just means that you're willing to be seen and you're willing to be heard. 
And you're willing to step into those spaces and have those conversations. So the first thing is this. What is required of us? What is required of us as spiritual people in a non-spiritual world or a non-Christian world? The first thing is this, to have a love for Christ. To have a love for Christ. In verse 1 he says this. He says, uh, Peter says, Fellow elders, witness of the sufferings of Christ, partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And this is what I, wanna, I, I love so much about Peter and his example. Because Peter says here, he says as a fellow elder. I love that he doesn't pull the apostle card. Because really, Peter had so much more experience, so much more knowledge, so much more first-hand encounters with Jesus than anyone else. Uh, apostles, the only people who could be apostles, if anybody calls themselves an apostle now, they're not. There is no apostles now. The only people who could be apostles were people who were chosen by Christ when he was alive, other than Peter, who Jesus encountered on the road to Damascus or the ones that were the, uh, who was chosen to replace the ones who were chosen to the one who was chosen to replace uh, Judas uh, who the other apostles chose but besides that you know he was an apostle he had a lot of, of, of authority that he could have swung around but he didn't what did he say a fellow elder a fellow spiritual leader that's what makes that what, that's what makes someone a good leader is not someone who elevates himself above everyone but someone who leans down into the space where other people are. And Peter said that he said, fellow elders, a witnesses of Christ. He says that we're all gathered together under this same idea that we've witnessed or heard about or know what Christ has done. And that is the commonality that we share. And that is the, the way in which we step out. It's from this place of knowing and loving who Christ is. And I love how he says they're a partaker and the glory that is to be revealed. That as a Christian, as a witness of who Christ is, that there's a hope that we hold on to. And it's that hope that leads us. It's that love of Christ that leads us. And so for us as Christians, listen, a leader in any space, a leader in any space must be led, must be a participator in the practice of the Christian walk. Luke 24, 48, it says, you are witnesses of these things. When Jesus is talking to his people, his disciples, he says, you are witnesses and what does a witness do? A witness gives a testimony about their experience. A witness gives a, a, a verbal testimony about what they've seen, what they've done, or what they've known. That's what God has called us to. And I love for Peter. He didn't place himself above anyone else. He wasn't speaking down to people, but he was stepping alongside them. And I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this. He says, It will always be our wisdom, dear friends, to put ourselves as much as we can into the position of those whom we address. It is a pity for anyone ever to seem to preach down to people. It is always better to be as nearly as possible on the same level as they are. Peter is showing us, for one, this love for Christ. This love for Christ and a witness of who He is. But in true leadership in this love for Christ, that it brings us into the space of a servant, of someone who loves and associates ourselves with the people around us, not as elevating ourselves as better than anyone else. And that is having a love for Christ, a true love for Christ. We can never step into spaces of leadership or ministering or anything with this idea of elevating ourselves to of, of, of more importance. Because if we've elevated ourselves to more importance than someone else, then, the love, then we, we're not loving Christ, we're loving ourselves. 
We're loving the feeling that we get. And you know those people, you know those Christians, or you know those preachers or pastors, that you, can, you just get this sense, this feel from them, that they, they're better than me. Right? They're, 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 more, they're closer to God than I am. You know, because that's how people view it. It's like, well, they're, they're like higher up on the, the ladder of Christian faith. Like they're, they can, they're reaching at the garment. I'm way down here in the mud. Man, Peter says, we're all partakers of that same glory to be revealed. We're all witnesses of the same suffering. We're all witnesses of the same things that God has done. And as our, let our love for Christ never allow us to be those people looking down, the pious people up on our platforms, looking down at the lowly sinners below us. That is not the kind of people Christ has called us to be. And that is not what Peter is calling people to be, whether that's leadership within the church or you as leaders, spiritual leaders in the spaces of your life taking up spiritual headship. And so then he continues on, not only a love for Christ and, 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 and not elevating ourselves to a place at which we should not be, but the second thing is this, that we would have a desire to lead and feed. And so in verse 2, he continues on and he says this to the people, to the elders, to the leaders in this space. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. The word, that, word, that word shepherd is used a lot throughout the Bible in many different spaces. And, you know, it's a language that is used for a very specific purpose because of the imagery that it communicates. Psalm 23.1 said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and we are His and we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. You know, and so when we think about shepherding, it's a very, like, meticulous, very careful, very protective, disciplinary guidance-type responsibility. And so the Bible uses this to kind of reveal to us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is one of the few things that really carries through from beginning to end this idea of shepherding. And so if it carries through so much, we need to understand the value of what the shepherd does. And that whether it's in church leadership or in the spaces that you walk, that God has called us to be shepherds, that there is a space that God has called you to be shepherding in as fathers, as husbands, as wives, as employees, as people, in spaces, as students. There's a space at which God is calling you to shepherd. That there are a people, there are a flock that God has called you to lead. There are people that, that are waiting on you, waiting on you to show them the way. So he says, shepherd the flock. You know, Jesus kind of really brought this home in John 10, just a, a really famous kind of passage speaking of shepherding. In John 10, 11 through 12, Jesus said this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who, is, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So I love how Jesus said this. He says, listen. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I'm not a hired hand. He says, I don't just do my thing and then leave. 
But I take a particular care and concern for the sheep of my flock. And so when God is calling us to be shepherds and leaders in the context of the space that He's given us, He is not. And for, for me, even as a father, and for fathers, challenging you this morning, we are not hired hands to the flock that God has given us. We are not to just get the job done and move on. It's not just enough that we raise kids that just make it to adulthood. They need more than that. We need to be mindful of the wolves. We need to be mindful of the enemy that's coming to try to snatch them. That's the difference between a shepherd and a hired hand. A hired hand just needs to make sure that they're there. But a shepherd protects. A shepherd disciplines. A shepherd's involved. A shepherd feeds. A shepherd is present. A shepherd sleeps among his sheep. That's what God has called us to be. Not a group of people just make sure the job is done. Listen, it's, it's an easy task just to make sure that we get from point A to point B. That's not the kind of people God's called us to be. That's not the kind of leaders that God has called us to be in our homes. In the spaces that you're in, we can't afford, we can't afford to be apathetic or passive about what God has called us to do. Luke 15, 4-7. More of this imagery of the shepherd. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What kind of shepherd is this? This is a kind of shepherd that knows his sheep. This is the kind of shepherd that knows the wanderer. This is the kind of shepherd that has a concern about the enemy, that has a concern about the dangers and the elements that are outside of the safe space of the good shepherd. This is the kind of shepherding that God has called us to. Husbands, fathers, mothers, students, Christian. You know, that's why for me, like, I just had such a hard time just preaching a message about church leadership this morning because I feel like you could very much deflect that. That's not for me. That's, that's for Jake. That's for Garen. That's for Sean. That's for, for Mr. Bailey. That's for whoever has ever worked in or done any type of leadership. It's like that. It's for that type of person. No. There is a space you live in right now that you are an elder, that you are a leader, that you are a spiritual presence that is spiritually more mature than anyone else that you're around. And they need you to step up. They need you to step into those spaces. Your family needs you, men, to step up. Your friends, men and women, they need you to step up and be spiritual leaders in the space that you navigate with them. And so one of the ways that you shepherd the flock is by feeding the flock. By feeding the flock. The Bible talks about this a little bit. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he talks about rightly dividing the Word of God. You know, and the way that this kind of brings about is this idea of preparing meat to be cooked. So in a lot of ways, us as Christians in the spaces that we step, we're spiritual chefs preparing a meal for the world to devour. And so for us, the mindset that we have to take, and, and I'm not like a cook by any means, but if you've done any cooking, then you know that there is a way at which you do things 
That it can turn out this way, or it can turn out way wrong, right? It can make you feel good and satisfied, or it can make you nauseous and sick. And if it's underprepared and it's undercooked, or if it's underdealt with or, or improperly dealt with, it can cause problems. It can cause sickness. It can cause distress. Listen, in the same way for us as Christians, we are spiritual chefs to the people around us. And so the question for us is what kind of spiritual meals are we providing for the people that we engage with? What kind of spiritual meal am I providing in my family? What spiritual meal are you providing to your friends? What spiritual meal? Because for you, as a Christian, as, and when you step into a space where you are the spiritual mature person, you are the chef. You are the one preparing the meal. You are the thing, your communication of Christianity, whether that's verbally or actively by how you live, is the meal at which they taste. And so the question is, is that meal a sour feast? Is it something that they can't quite, can't quite stomach? Is it something that turns them off from this particular type of, of meal? Or is it something that when they get a taste of what you have, of who you, what, you, what you know about Christ, I'm not talking about knowledge, but just who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. Did they taste it and say, man, I'd, I'd like to have a little bit more of that. I'd like to taste some more of that. So he's called us to rightly divide the Word of God. I mean, this is what Jesus even told Peter. And so maybe you think to yourself, well, this isn't me. This isn't the space. This isn't what I'm supposed to do. Like, I, I don't know enough. I can't do enough. I'm not going to say the right things. Like, I'm not going to be the right person. Listen, Jesus came to Peter. And we read it in John 21, verse 17. He came to Peter. Peter denied him three times in front of his face, leaving him, running away in fear, cowering away. And what did Jesus do? Jesus sought him out and he said, Peter, the simple question is this. The simple question is this. Do you love me? What does he say? He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus didn't say, can you not do what you did before? Can you not turn away from me when I'm dying for you? He didn't say, can you not make those mistakes again? He said this to Peter. He said, do you love me? Peter responded in a very Peter way. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And what did Jesus say? He said, feed my sheep. Listen, he didn't ask for a preconditioned evaluation he didn't ask for uh, some type of penance to be made. Jesus said, do you love me? Church, the requirement to be able to lead unspiritual or unsaved people in your life, at the base level, to lead spiritually in the space that God has placed you in, is to love Christ. He says, do you love me? Do you know me? Do you know what I've done for you? Listen, if nothing else, if, if me or Garen ever teach you anything, I hope that we always teach you how much Christ has done for you. So that you'll never have any question whether Christ has loved you and whether you have love to give. Because in reality, we can only give love that we've been given. 
But as a Christian, you've been given more love than can be fathomed. That's why it's called grace. Because God has poured out a love on you that no other love in this world will ever match. I can never love my spouse the way Christ has loved me. You cannot love your spouse the way Christ has loved you. You can't love your children, even though you think that you could. You could never even love your children the way Christ has loved you. Because He gave Himself for you. Not only did He give Himself for you, but He took on the weight of every wrong thing we had ever done in our lives. The punishment required for that. He took it on Himself. And He died for you. And He died for me. To make a way so that we could be spiritual shepherds in the spaces God has given us. And not only that, but then he continues on and we'll move through this. He starts to lay out some specific ways at which you lead and feed. And he says in verse 2, he says, exercising oversight. So what does that mean? It means to be an overseer. What is an overseer does? That is literally somebody who sees or looks over a group of people or sees what they need. And so how do you lead and feed the spiritually unfed or the unspiritual in your life? You see what they need. You be mindful. Listen, we live in a world where we are closed into such a box of, of social media and isolation that we are missing so much of the people around us. The relationships that we have. Listen, that's even happening in homes between husbands and wives. We're so disconnected that we don't know what each other needs. Men, women, students, be overseers. Be overseers. I almost like this idea of seeing too much, right? Being an overseer. See, see, see what people are going through. See what they know. See what they need. See how you can serve them. You know, I love this in Ezekiel 34, and I encourage you to go back into Ezekiel 34 and read as uh, God is really kind of hammering down on the elders or the spiritual leaders in the church in this time. But he says this when he's talking about being, and specifically about this idea of being overseers or seeing what needs to be seen. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. Listen, he says, be overseers. See what people need. See what your spouse needs from you. See what your kids need from you. See what your co-workers need from you. See what your fellow students need from you. Spiritually. And he continues on. He says, not only that we would do it exercising oversight, but we would not do it under compulsion, but willingly. But willingly as God would have you. So what does that mean, not under compulsion? Well, it means that we would not be spiritual leaders out of this heart of empty obligation. That we would not do it just checking something off our bucket list. That we would not do it out of this harshness or laziness or even apathy where it's like I'm just trying to accomplish a goal. I'm just trying to do a thing. I come week after week after week or I have the same family, you know. Because what happens when we begin to do things under compulsion, then we've talked about this before, then you begin to live in this mindset that the grass is greener on the other side. Right? That maybe I can find something that I like to do willingly. 
Maybe there's a life for me that, that, that draws out of me this willingness that is more exciting. Man, he says, don't do anything under compulsion. Don't do anything under compulsion. Don't, do, don't lead spiritually under compulsion. Not by, by force, but by desire. Not out of empty obligation, but consistent love and concern for the collective. Whether that's this flock or the flock in your home. Lead willingly. We lead willingly. Verse 2, he continues on. He says, not only that, but not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Anything we do, anything we do as Christian leaders or leaders in the spaces that we minister in, that's not, is not for our own gain or our own glory, but for God's and the good of others. Listen, and this is a space stepping back out into the kind of the grander picture of the church. You know, when you hear those words, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, listen, we can probably throw a rock and hit a church where you feel like, man, that's, it's all about that guy, right? It's all, about, it's all about the gain. It's all about what we can gain from it. I mean, you can watch TV, listen to the radio. You're going to hear a pastor that, I promise you, I promise you, their main goal in life is to make money doing ministry. I hate to say that, but that is where we are in the world. It's all about gain, saying what I can to make sure people give me the money that I need to live the lifestyle that I love. But not only that, like that's the big scale, but even in the context of our home, that what we do spiritually in leading, it's not for me. And a lot of times we, we, we kind of push back against it because it's like, oh, I don't feel like it. Or, or it, doesn't, it, it doesn't, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. Man, it's not about what you get out of it. It's about what your family needs from you. It's about what your church needs from you. It's about what the people in your community need from you. To begin to grow in your relationship with Christ so that you can prepare the spiritual meals that the people around you desperately need. It's not about me. We live in such a me world. Watch any Disney movie that's been created in the last 10 years and what's it about? It's about developing or unleashing the power that's from within you. Our children, are, we're, uh, we as a world are being indoctrinated with this idea that it's all about me. And you know what? The reason marriages are falling apart because we've been convinced that if I'm not happy, it's not right. Listen, happiness changes from day to day. We talked about it last week. What are we driven by? The joy that we have in Christ. And if we're not drawing near to God, we're never going to have the, the gasoline that we need to fuel the car that we need to carry on. Listen, emptiness is a poor, poor substitute for the joy that only God can give us to sustain anything of any value in our life. Listen, I'm not always happy about my circumstances. You're not always happy about your circumstances. But there's something that carries us through that, and that's part of that spiritual meal that we prepare for the people around us. They need to know there's something more than the day-to-day -day moments of your life. Man, Christ is engaged in all of that with you, and not only that, but He's provided a hope beyond all this. So not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Eagerly. And not only that, the last thing this morning says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Listen, and I'm still learning this as a father. 
And there's a lot of this that we need to learn as people, as Christians, as we lead the flock that we've been given. That sheep cannot be driven. They can only be led. Listen, most people, they don't need a boss. They need a leader. They don't need someone just using their authority and spilling it out over top of them. They need someone being an example. Listen, anybody, anybody can stand over people and tell them what to do if you have enough knowledge about the task at hand. What people need is they need someone down on their, on their knees with them. Getting dirty with them. Working with them. Leading with them. Accomplishing a task together. That's what's hard. Flexing authority is easy. Leading takes humility. Leading takes patience. Leading takes preparation. That's what God has called us to be. That's what God has called us to do. Listen, for our kids, for our spouses, for the people in our life, that He has not called us to be domineering. And so what it means to be domineering is it's to assert one's own will over someone else's. But we, what we have to understand is God has called us to something. God has called us to exercise dominion. Read back in Genesis. What does He tell, what does he tell specifically even man? What does He tell man to do? Take dominion. There's a difference between taking dominion and being domineering. Domineering is asserting one's will. To take dominion is to lean into spaces of disorder and to lead. And so what God has called us to do is He's called us to take dominion over the domains that He's given us. God has given you a domain. God has given you a family. God has given you a workspace. God has given you a home. Maybe God has given you a locker at work. I mean, we have all these spaces where we practice dominion. And then there's small spaces that we exercise dominion where we, where we, we enter into those spaces not lazy. We enter into those spaces not apathetic, but we enter those spaces of disorder with care and concern and with goals. That's taking dominion when we enter into those spaces with goals. And so for us, what God has called us to is God has given you a space in your life that He is calling you to take dominion over. From the smallest thing, maybe it's just keeping your vehicle clean. I know that's a hard task sometimes. I've lived that life. Taking dominion over that space up to taking dominion over the family that you lead. Not being domineering, not asserting your will as an authoritarian, but taking dominion, trying to bring order. And in this sense, we're talking about spiritual order to your family. Spiritual order to the spaces of influence that you have, where you are leading in that way. Because what we can't allow to do, church, is we can't allow dominions to take dominion over us. Don't allow your spaces of dominion or your domains to take dominion over you. Don't let your domains take dominion over you. And so we do that by stepping into the spaces that God has called us to and being an example. To be seen, to be spectated, to be assisted, to be judged, to be critiqued. We as Christians can't be afraid to step into those spaces. To be spiritual. You know, because that's, that's where a lot of us, where we're afraid. We're afraid to be spiritual. Right? We're afraid to mention our faith. We're afraid to mention that we're a Christian. I mean, especially in this world. You know, we're afraid. We're afraid to be seen. And we've talked about this before, church. We, we've got to be seen. We've got to be known. We've got to be engaged with, and we've got to be engaging. And then he ends it like this. 
In verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, when we think back to, you know, the, the Olympics are going on right now, we think back to ancient Athens and they're, you know, they're, they were all about athletics. They were all about competition. And when someone would win a competition, they would be given this wreath or this set of flowers or some type of arrangement as a representation of the, the crown or the, 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 the glory of their victory or whatever it is that they had. You know, and so they would have this, but, but days later, weeks later, what's happening to this kind of representation of their victory? It's withering away. doesn't matter how well you take care of it. I don't care how green your thumb is. It's withering away. You can't provide enough nutrition to it. There's not enough time to hold it together. Think about the trophies that we have these days. They're only going to look new for so long. They're only going to look clean for so long. Listen, from 2022 to 2023, that 2022 trophy is outdated. You are no longer the champion of that space anymore. But what God has promised us is when we lead with the intentions and the vision of knowing that there's something beyond me, there's something bigger than what this world offers me and that's only found in Christ Jesus, God promises, Peter says to the people here, that when the shepherd returns, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. That there will be something that will be given to you that time nor spaces nor people can take from you. And that is an eternity of knowing that you are in the right hand of God. You are in the space at which God wants you to be. That you are being held. That you are being loved. That you are being provided for. That you are being given everything that you need in the hands of God. There is nothing. There is no crown. There is no trophy. There is no wreath. There is no, no prize that this world offers us that will sustain us. But he tells him, Peter tells him, listen, we are fighting for a crown that can only be given by God. All other crowns, all other prizes will fade, the leaves and the petals will wither and dry and die. You'd prepare to work for the next one only for it to dry and die again. God offers us a crown. He offers us a symbol of our victory that is unfading, that is unchanging. It is a goal we point towards in the topic of our teaching. And so then I want to end it like this. As the band kind of comes up and we're, we'll sing to, to, to finish up our time of worship uh, together. But my challenge for us is this. And, and, and really where men this morning, really where... I hope that for us, this message of leadership... Listen, our church needs men to step up and be leaders. Elders, deacons. I want to see men step into those roles. Your space of influence, the flock that God has given you to shepherd, needs you to be a leader, men. Listen, when the world is pressing in around the faith, the flock, when the enemy is circling, the most important thing to the flock is the shepherd. The most important thing to the flock is the shepherd and what God has called us to in the context of the local church, but even more so in the context of the space that you live as a husband, as a wife, as a student in our schools. God has called you to be a shepherd. God has called you to be pointing towards a greater crown. And listen, for my men this morning, in a lot of ways, that starts with you. God has called you to be leaders. God has called you to be shepherds of your flock. 
Bodie Bauckham said this, a great pastor and teacher. I encourage you to look him up. He said this, It has been said that as goes the family, so goes the world. But it can also be said that as goes the father, so goes the family. And God has called us to step up. We've got to lead. We've got to lead in our families. We've got to lead in the church. We've got to lead in our communities. We've got to be pointing towards this unfading crown of glory that God has given us. And listen, it is not going to be an easy task. It is going to be one that the enemy is going to constantly be attacking us to overtake and to take that responsibility from us, to take things from us in a way that when, you know, uh, for a shepherd, if a sheep were to be taken out of his midst, that he could easily say that I'm not fit to be a shepherd anymore. That I'm not fit to do this. I can't even keep up with one. But then God would remind him, listen, you've lost one, but there's 99 more standing behind you. For every single one of us, we may have one failure. We may have one slip up. We may have two. We may have three. But you know what? There's still 99 more things that God has called us to lead and to do in our lives. And that there's no failure. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no mistake that takes away the responsibility that God has given each and every one of us man, woman, and child, God has called us to be spiritual leaders. If we call ourselves a Christian in the world you live in today, you are automatically a shepherd in a space of unspiritual believers in your life that God is waiting for you, waiting for you to step up. And listen, it's going to be tough. And I love this image of David in 1 Samuel 17, 34 and 36. I love this image of David. He says this, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Listen, and a lot of times we would probably think of this imagery as a shepherd and be like, I mean, how tough is being a shepherd? How tough is doing this job? But I love David here. David says that I used to keep sheep for my father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. Not only did I go after him, but I struck him. And I delivered it out of his mouth. And he arose against me and I caught him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine, talking about Goliath, shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Listen, and this is, David was not a perfect man by any means. He was not an exceptionally strong man by any means. David made a lot of mistakes that cost him a lot of things. David had a flock that he poorly shepherded for many, many times and lost a lot of sheep to his mistakes. But the encouragement that we can find from David is that David was faithful and continuing on in his journey. Listen, and, and even at the end of his life, still making mistakes. But isn't, isn't that the course of our life, right? From sin to mistakes to failures to mess ups. And then as David would pass on the mantle to his son, carry it on, continue on shepherding, continue on growing, continue on doing. David didn't say, listen, I've lost too many sheep to pass this on to you. Listen, I'm not a good, I'm not a good person to follow. David said, listen, you're not following me. I'm just pointing you to the right person to follow. I'm pointing you to the shepherd that's been shepherding me my whole life. Church, the responsibility isn't to point people to you. You're not shepherding people back to yourself. You're shepherding people to your shepherd. Shepherd them to Christ. Shepherd them to Him. 
in His goodness, in His grace, in His mercy, in His love. Listen, your flesh will fail. It's not a question. It will. But the Spirit of God within you, the resurrection Spirit of Christ within you, will give you and equip you with everything we need. First off, to come to Christ. Say, God, I need you more than I can even make known. I need something outside of myself to sustain me. And then not only that, to move and to be leaders, to be elders and spiritual shepherds in your life, God will equip you. And men, to step up and to be men and elders and spiritual leaders here in the local church that God has entrusted us with. God will provide you the way. If you have the gifting and the callings, God will, and the qualification, God will provide you the way. So let us bow our heads, close our eyes, and just engage with God this morning. Know in what space, as we contemplate this, in what space, if you're a Christian this morning, could you be leading? What space is God calling you to shepherd in? Think of the spaces where you know without a shadow of a doubt you are the spiritual leader in that space. think about that, not to be shamed, but hopefully to be encouraged, that you can lead in that space, that the people around you are just waiting for you, waiting to see you, waiting to hear from you, waiting to be maybe just simply invited to join you to worship. In what spaces can you lead better? What spaces can you step into that calling? And then maybe this morning you've never, you've never known the shepherd, the good shepherd, Christ Jesus and what he's done, the protection and the care and the love and concern that he has for his people. And he says, come. He says, call out to me. Acknowledge your need. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your hurts. Acknowledge that you need something outside of yourself for salvation, for rescuing, and He says that He will give us rest, that He will catch us, and that He will save us. In whatever space this morning you need to deal with God, I pray this morning that we would do that. And so we come, Father God, we just ask You to speak to us, speak through us. God, reveal to us where we are called to be shepherds. Lord, where we are called to be the leaders in these spaces that are waiting for us with our wives, our husband, their husbands, with their children, with their co-workers, with their fellow students, their peers at school. Father God, give us the courage that we need, the guidance we need to be spiritual shepherds in those spaces. Father God, most of all, let us know who you are as the good shepherd. Lord, we love you. 